Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. When I was uh, in, about in junior high growing up in San Diego, one of the rare treats in an afternoon would be if uh, my mom or my dad would drop us off at the movie theater and get to see a matinee. One of my favorite movies in those years, in the late 60s, was this war movie called The Dirty Dozen. Some of you have seen it? Some of you remember it? You should check it out again. It had, uh, the star of it was Lee Marvin, and they had guys like Charles Bronson and Telly Savalas. Uh, John Cassavetes, I think, won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor that year in that movie. Ernest Borgnine. Jim Brown coming out of a football career, just to mention a few. And it told a story about this military operation that occurred during World War II. And usually I'm not a big fan of war movies, and I wasn't even as a kid, but this was one that held my attention. And I've even watched it a couple of times with folks since. Now, I don't remember all the parts of the movie, but I remember a lot about it. I do remember that there was this American officer who was played by Lee Marvin who had a very tough mission to accomplish. His assignment was to set free some American prisoners from a Nazi prisoner of war camp, something like that. In order to accomplish this, he did not go and get the best of soldiers to do it. For one thing, he was told that the plan had very little chance of working, so they didn't want to waste any real soldiers on it. So to recruit men for his mission, he went to this American prison where bad soldiers were being held, the stockade. Men who had messed up in terrible ways, those who had run afoul of the military justice system, In there were thieves, and there were murderers, and there were scoundrels who'd come up the hard way in life. And when they got into the military, they just continued their uh, devious ways. So this is where he went to recruit for his mission. And as the movie unfolds, the men he gathered were engaged in this mission. And we begin to see the wisdom of this officer as he selects this dirty dozen of soldiers. For one thing, a lot of them had skills that they'd needed earlier in their rough young lives that proved kind of handy for this kind of a mission. One of them knew how to pick locks, which came in pretty handy if you had to get into or out of something. Another was good in a fight. He had great fists. And they were all good at lying and concealment, and being sneaky. Exactly the skills they needed to go out and do this mission. I can remember this movie because I think one of the appeals of it, for me, even as a young man, and probably for the public who flocked out to see it, was that it was a story about people whom the world regarded as sort of inept, not very gifted, Kind of troubled people. Not ordinary folks. Someone who'd, some of them been seen as downright worthless. And as a junior high kid, 
I could connect with that. And yet in the right situation, with the right sort of guidance and inspiration and sense of purpose, they became heroes. And I could see myself in that group. So for anyone who felt the least bit discouraged or inept or defeated or worthless, there was encouragement in this story about a dozen prisoners who got the chance to be war heroes. Under the guidance of a great leader, those losers accomplished the mission and they got the job done, of course. Well, today's Gospel tells us about a dozen people who were chosen by Jesus. Maybe not the dirty dozen, but a collection of pretty unlikely folks. Pretty unremarkable people for a mission that would change the course of human history. And there were no press conferences to shower them with, uh, shower the folks with their accomplishments. There, were, there was no nationwide search for skilled candidates like you're going to be doing when you search for a pastor. No credentials whatsoever for these folks. No experience did they have in working with people or making speeches or leading movements. When Jesus picks His dozen, sends them out to minister to the world, to preach and to teach, and to do the very same things Jesus had been doing, he skipped the qualifications. No seminary needed. No mention of their great potential or what great human beings they were or their righteous living or their unusually deep spirit. Rather abruptly here, we get to the 10th chapter of Matthew. And we're simply told that Jesus decided it was time to pick a few people to help Him accomplish the mission. Matthew gives us their names because I think that's important. But other than that, nothing. And that seems a bit odd to me. At least it struck me that way this year as I read that text. Could it be that This is to show us the way that Jesus does things. Maybe the selection of these twelve disciples is to reveal to us something of the nature of Jesus rather than the special and wonderful collection of disciples that Jesus has called. First, He calls fishermen. Day laborers. Blue collar workers, if you will. Rough, unpolished uneducated. And then we're told that he chose a tax collector. And at that, he was a dirty one. One who later went on to write this Gospel. This account of Jesus' life and the good news of Jesus Christ. And among the others, Jesus called as Thomas, who ends up being a doubter, and Judas, who ultimately betrays him. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to know that Jesus bends over backwards to assure us that the ones that are chosen for the task are nothing special. But that's what makes it special. 
It was to these 12 ordinary people who had no particular qualifications that Jesus would use to introduce the reign of God and the kingdom of God to the world. And it worked. Think about how it changed the course of human history. And then not only does He gather them, He sends them out. Sends them out into the world to do the very same things that He'd been doing. To preach and to teach and to heal and to challenge people. To befriend people. To empower people. To forgive people. To love people. Think about that extraordinary mission that He was sending them out to accomplish. Not because they were going to become like Jesus but that they might demonstrate to the world a little bit more about who Jesus is. Now, this is my first opportunity to look out upon this motley crew that Jesus has gathered here. (laughs) Then I've got Michael over here to my side, and I've got a choir behind me, which I never trust. I'm thinking about a few things about our life together. This neighborhood church. I'm guessing pretty much the same negligible qualities that the original group had. I don't know if there's a tax collector among us or not. Don't raise your hand. (laughs) But we have been given the same extraordinary mission to accomplish. And that seems highly unlikely as I look around. Thankfully, we've got more than a dozen here. Way more than a dozen here. But when you look at us, our backgrounds and our skill sets and our past experiences, what is it that qualifies us to go out into the world and live in Jesus' name? I mean, who are we to go out into the world and live out the good news of Jesus in an unbelieving world. You know, if church sociologists, folks who study this stuff, if they're right, if they're anywhere near correct, about 87% of the people out there don't believe any of this hooey. They don't believe a thing about Jesus. They don't know what to make of the church. Yet God has chosen you and me. What was God thinking? (laughs) Well, one of the things you're going to hear me remind you of during this time together is that God has no plan B. (laughs) You and I are plan A, and that's where it ends. The mission is up to us. You and I are nowhere near qualified to do this, but by the grace of God, we've been chosen, we've been authorized, we've been commissioned. 
We've been baptized into this. And to me, that seems like a rather miraculous and wonderful thing. Maybe it is that God sees in us more potential, more wherewithal, than we see in ourselves. Perhaps God thinks that what needs doing in the world requires some people, old and young and somewhere in between, that have a few nicks and scratches and dents and bulges and bruises and a worldly wisdom of their own. Maybe, just maybe, the God who was wise enough and wonderful enough and powerful enough to set the entire planet into place, who hung the stars in the sky and caused the planets to move. Maybe this God of the entire universe wants the experiences that we've had at work, the failures we've had in life, work and school and marriage and raising kids and building careers and playing Maybe God can take all of that and use those experiences to help others. Could it be? There's no plan B, folks. It's us. Now a couple of things that are important to me. Word about prayer. I've come to believe that the sweetest prayer in God's ear is this simple one. Lord, have mercy. It's the prayer of recognition by the sinner that they're broken and busted and that they need help. That they can't negotiate life on their own. I think that's the sweetest prayer to our Lord's ear. Lord, have mercy. That's where God begins to take a hold of your life and walk with you. I pray that prayer almost every day. A second prayer that is daily for me and important to me, I learned from spending quite a bit of time with the author, Annie Lamott. Some of you have read her stuff. If you haven't read anything from Annie Lamott, start with her book, Traveling Mercies. Wonderful, wonderful person. She taught me this. I start every day, every morning, with this simple prayer. Whatever. (laughs) It's kind of a prayer that recognizes that whatever comes that day, rain and shine, good and bad, that I expect God to be with me in it. Whatever. And then the third prayer that I pray almost every day, I'm a a little more careful with this prayer, is one that I found to be the most dangerous prayer in all the world. It has two words in it. Use me. Now I have dared many folks along the ways of 40 years of being a pastor to try it. But to do it judiciously, like Do it when you're ready to buckle up and put on your hard hat. Because God will take you up on that prayer. Some have tried it. 
and they've come back to tell me stories about how it changed their direction in life. I know it's changed mine. It hasn't made it easier. In fact, I'd say it's made it more messy. I'm going to tell you about Alice. Alice is one woman I'm thinking about. She prayed that prayer in worship one day after I issued the challenge. She told me she'd spent most of her life raising a family. And over the years, her husband had left her. And one day, she looked up from the grind of that task of raising a family and discovered that everybody was gone. <laughs> I mean, the husband had left, the kids grew up and left. And she wondered if she had anything life, anything in life left to live for. She presented herself at my office one morning and she asked if I could give her something to do. That also is a dangerous request. <laughs> she sort of stumbled and bumbled around and said that she had a few excuses, like, you know, she wasn't sure that she had any experience, that she had limited education. She wasn't thinking there'd probably be much for her to do or to offer her church community. Well, she was really wrong. She was a mother of four kids. And unbeknownst to her, she'd had she'd gained these great organizational skills to run a household with four kids in it. Those skills were used by that congregation to organize its first team for Habitat for Humanity. And it grew into this huge ministry within that community, building houses alongside of the working poor, both in their community and in the world. Because she was good at organizing people, you see. And she was good at getting people to make a commitment. And she was great at follow-up and holding people to things that they said they would do and their commitments they made. Those were all skills she'd learned in her experience, primarily as a single mother. And her rather unremarkable set of qualities proved to be marvelously useful to the people of God in that congregation while they tried to figure out how it would be that they could grow in their service to the community and to the world, to live out the gospel. And it all came into play because she prayed that simple prayer, use me. Now, from what I've observed through the years, this is usually the way that Jesus goes to work seems to take delight in taking ordinary, everyday people, people who do not seem to have many qualifications or talents or credentials that might be needed, and he selects them to be his disciples. And then he promises to give us what we need in order to be faithful to him. He says, don't, don't practice your speeches, don't study theology, just let me provide you the right words. Let me work through you. And just trust me on this, Jesus says. You see, God has this mission to the world that God loves so much. God's not asking for sermons. God's not asking for perfection. More talking. Not asking us to be crazy nuts in the world 
with a megaphone on the street corner. God is calling us to be who we are. To be our authentic selves as we live out our faith in our everyday world. Nothing more, nothing less. And so God sends us out into the world which God created and loved and died to save, promising us us only that we will be part of something great. God's movement in the world that is going to bring hope and salvation to a dying world and good news and healing to people just like us. One more story. Soon after World War II, there were a group of German students who wanted to demonstrate kindness and love. They were part of a a church movement in Germany. They had this desire to return Christian love to those who had lost so much in the war. And they volunteered through their church to go to London to help rebuild an English cathedral that had been damaged severely by German bombs. And so as the work progressed, they became greatly concerned about this large statue of Jesus that sat in the cathedral. And in this, this statue had Jesus with arms outstretched, and beneath was written a caption from the Gospel of Matthew, 11th chapter, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Well, the student volunteer workers, they had success at most everything, except with that statue. They just had this struggle trying to get the hands back on to the arms of Jesus. They worked and worked and they tried and tried some more, but it had been obliterated really by the bombings. And nothing seemed to work that they would try to replace those outstretched hands of Jesus. And finally, after a lot of work and a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a lot of discussion and even prayer, This is what they decided. They decided to let the hands of Jesus remain missing. And they changed the written inscription at the bottom of the statue to read this way. Christ has no hands but ours. Indeed. Glory be to you, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with the Holy Spirit reigns eternally one God, now and always. Amen.